The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode five of season five of the Drum Candy Podcast. And this is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Once again, thanks to Simon Treasure for our intro beat for this season. And let's get to what's happening. Special announcement here. We are going to be kicking off the first of a monthly, semi-monthly drum hang in partnership with the Drum Candy Podcast, Drum Factory Direct, the Pennsylvania chapter of the Percussive Arts Society, and Hawthorne Drum Shop, we are going to be doing a drum hang. So the first one is on January 23rd from 6 to 9. So from 6-ish to 7.15, I'm going to be doing a drum tuning workshop. So if you want to bring one of your drums, we can get it tuned up. I'm going to focus on just general topics on how to tune toms for this one. And then the great David Throckmorton is going to give us a clinic performance from 7.30 to 9. These are pretty informal. They're free. They're going to be taking place at Hawthorne Drum Shop. Um, again, six to nine. So bring yourself if you're in the Pittsburgh area. Bring yourself. Bring your students. Bring your friends. We probably can accommodate upwards of 30 people. Um, but it's going to be a good hang. We have some food and drinks and drums, and you get to see David just throw down like he always does. And I will nerd out on some drum tuning. So mark your calendar, six to nine, January 23rd. That's a Tuesday night at Hawthorne Drum Shop, and we will be doing these about every six weeks with different guests and different topics. So. I look forward to seeing you. Hope you can make it. It'd be cool if you could RSVP, if you definitely can. So hit me with a DM on Instagram. You could hit our Drum Factor Direct Instagram or my personal page, Mike Dawson Drums. You can email drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. We would like to get a head count. So if you know if you're definitely going to come, hit me up so we know we at least have enough space to accommodate everyone. All right, let's get to our featured artist. This week's guest is the great Sebastian Thompson. Sebastian is an incredible rock drummer. Um, I first became aware of him in the post-rock band Trans Am out of D.C. Incredible band. If you haven't checked them out, check out their their entire discography. It's super cool stuff. Um, And now, most recently, for the past few years, he's been touring all over with Baroness, and they just put a new record out, which is killing. They just did the first leg of touring, so I'm sure they'll be coming back around. Um, Just an incredible rock drummer. Good hang. We kind of get into the weeds a bit about being left-handed and in a right-hander's world and all that. So here's the first part. Let's get to it with Sebastian Thompson. It's cool to talk to a fellow lefty. And unlike you, I conformed and learned how to play drums on a right-handed kit. <laughs> and you, you gave in. You gave in. I gave in. So why did you play a left-handed kit? I mean, I think the question is, why do you play a right-handed? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, because they're all set up that way. That was the decision I made. Okay, and and then so the answer is that I uh, I play everything else right-handed because switching everything else is a massive pain in the butt. But switching a drum kit is pretty easy. Interesting. When you're you know a little kid. So so the way I started, I started. Uh, I was going to be the singer in a band. I was in like fourteen. And we had a drum kit just waiting for the drummer, and the drummer would never show up to rehearsal. So I would just sit at the kit. I switched it round and sat at the kit, and just then I would play drums. And it was we had it. We had a keyboard player, believe it or not. 
And he's the one that just was like, you know, do this. Right. So, um, sorry. Uh, so yeah, so it, it was because it, it was just a kick drum, a hi-hat snare and like a Tom and a cymbal. It took like two seconds to switch. Right. So I, I just got used to playing like that. I just, that's what made sense to me. And then when I, I took a handful of lessons about a year or two later, and my teacher said, you know, you're a lefty, you're still young, you should play in a right-handed kit, and you'll be like ambidextrous and amazing. And I said to him, well, then you should play in a left-handed kit. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he was like, yeah, forget that idea. How did you even know it was a left-handed kit? Like, I remember I like, think, yeah, looking at the TV thinking, all right, that's the way they play, so that's just what I do. I, I think I think the, the, the keyboard player in that band had done some like school band something or other and he's like oh you're left-handed the spirit goes on the other side wild yeah i mean i don't remember exactly but i think it was that and i mean the thing is like drums the drum set is only what a hundred and some years old if that so there's not i mean there isn't like some like you know set in stone way to do it and and honestly i think this hand of heavens thing is interesting because my first instrument was violin. And if you think about it, the violin, if I'm just like using the bow and doing all the stuff with my left hand, the left hand is doing a hundred times more stuff than the right hand. And that goes for writing. It's that's really bizarre if you think about it. It is. Right? And and then if you think about guitar, if I'm just strumming chords, the left hand is doing so much more intricate stuff than the right hand. That's also really weird, right? So I think that some some things are just tradition. And I think my theory is that stringed instruments started with more finger picking and less fretting. Oh. And that's why the, the strings are in the right hand. Right. If you think about bluegrass banjo, yeah, the right hand does a hell of a lot more than the left hand. That makes sense. Yeah. But as different instruments develop and different um, styles develop, you're just—it's like evolution. You're just stuck with the generation before. People very rarely start from zero, and uh, like I remember when I took also a handful of those, of those lessons, I remember asking my teacher i was like the kick drum patterns that i'm playing in these beats are so much more complicated than the snare backbeat why are we making the foot do this complicated stuff in the hands on two and four i mean i didn't real i mean it sounds stupid but obviously part of the answer is that the, the kick drum originally did really simple stuff mm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Quarter notes. Yeah, and, half notes. And, 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 now, and now we're just stuck with it. And now when Thomas Hockey plays Obson, I mean, whatever, what's the song of Obson? You know what I'm saying. Oh, Bleed. Is that the one? Bleed. Yeah, when he plays Bleed, he's just doing backbeat on the stair, and the feet are doing hurtas. That's like, <laughs> like if, if, if you created a drum kit, that would be completely the backwards way to do it to do it like, true true <laughs> like it's really bizarre so my point is i this is kind of roundabout but I'm, what i'm saying is that like in music we just inherit things and we modify what we what we inherit 
So, but yeah, I started playing left-handed because it's, I think a drum kit is easy to switch around. I think a guitar is really hard to switch around. That's, that the, that's the short answer. Now, did it cause any issues back in the day when you were having to share kits and, I mean, quick changeovers? Do you know, do you know what? It actually caused a lot of uh, benefits. Really? Which is that when you're practicing with your band and you take a break, your bandmates don't sit on your uh, kit and try to play, <laughs> which is awesome. Is that still the case now? No one touches your kit? It's still the case now. Everybody's like... Oh, I want to, and then like, fuck. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course there's many shows where I've shared kids and it doesn't cause a problem for me because I'm, I'm fast at it. And, and most shows where you're sharing kids, it's just like a four piece kid probably. Yeah. And you're probably not sharing the symbols anyway. So you have to, you have to change that around anyway. It's more of an issue sometimes for the sound guy mm. at a small show with the with the cables being crossed and whatever. But uh, I mean, it it it, it literally takes a minute. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, you know? I've been contemplating trying to relearn left-handed because my right hip is starting to get some tendonitis. I'm like, maybe I should oh, no. just play left-handed. Do you play fully right-handed or do you play open? Fully right-handed. But I'm so definitely left-hand dominant. It's weird. So if, if, you, if you go one, two, three, four, one, you start with your right hand. Right. Yep. So you're I fully right. myself. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. I mean, but like I was saying, there's no, like, there's no, there's no, there's almost not that much rhyme or reason to it. Like going back to what I was saying about the kick drum doing that complicated stuff. It's kind of weird that your weak hand that does the back beat. Mm-hmm. That's also that's also kind of weird. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, how did you get into drums? Were you so? I forget your bio, your biography in order. You were born in Argentina. How long were you there? And when did drums and music enter your life? So the long story short is, I left. I came to America when I for kindergarten. Okay. Did my elementary school here. I played violin in school. I didn't play in rock bands in elementary school. I was I was already really into music, but just as a, as a kid, as a fan, listening to whatever, metal or pop music or whatever. And then I went, after eighth grade, I went back to Argentina. And what happened was, like, I think most high school bands, you started playing covers. Mm-hmm. And most of the covers were American and English bands. We were doing and because I had just come back from America, my English was the best of all my, my new friends. So they're like, you're going to be the singer. I was like, okay, fine, because I could speak English. Uh-huh. So like I said, I would go to, we would go to practice, and the drummer, being a drummer, <laughs> would never show up. So I would sit at the kit. And then eventually we realized that I play drums better than I sing. Okay. And, and, then, and then, yeah, it just went from there. So I don't hear any tinge of a Spanish accent. Is your Spanish well, got a uh, got an American tinge to it? Well, it, it I mean, it's changed over my life. I mean, first of all, like I was here from kindergarten to eighth grade. Yeah, that's that's your formative years. Right, right. Three and a half years of high school is not going to erase, you know. And and my high school had English in the afternoon in Argentina. Okay. 
so it was bilingual. But uh, but yeah, but when I came back to America after high school, my English was pretty weird. I had a weird accent when I came back. And now, all these years later, my Spanish kind of sucks. <laughs> That's interesting. So it's like, I mean, you know, early youth really cements your language, right? But uh, but it, it, it will always change slowly over your life. Mm. So when did music become serious for you? And did you come from a musical family? I mean, my parents played instruments, but they weren't. I mean, nobody in my family, in my immediate family, did music seriously or professionally, no. Okay. So when did you decide, I want to be a musician? For so I never, honestly, I always thought, hey, this is such an awesome hobby. Yeah. Right? I never thought I was going to be a profession. And I was... I got an undergraduate degree in physics, and then I started a, um, a PhD in physics. And I was in a band called Trans Am at the time. Right. And Trans Am started out in this sort of DC post-hardcore scene, but then became one of the first like post-rock bands. And so my first year of graduate school, we started doing well. We started going on tour, started making money and selling records. And that was really exciting. And I never like, I mean, of course you dream of it, but I never expected that. And so I said to myself, uh, you know, why not take a break from grad school? I can always go back in the future. Success in music requires a bit of luck and a bit of good timing. And if it happens, you should take it, take the opportunity. But I never went back, obviously. It's, here I am. Talking mm. to you. <laughs> And I mean, to be successful with Trans Am, which is a pretty experimental band, um, how did you guys define success? You're able to, to pay your bills and tour? I mean, sure. I mean, I've, 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 just like, I've never had a day job in my life since hmm. quitting grad school. That's how I define success. I mean, we were selling whatever, upwards of 30,000 copies a year. And it's nice. And this was before Napster. Yeah. Like we were actually selling, we were selling vinyl and CDs and we were going on tour and at our height, we were playing, you know, 1200 capacity venues and stuff. Yeah. That's, you know, so we, we, we had a moment for sure. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we had, we made enough money to, we, we, we had our own studio recording studio that we funded with the band and paid our rents and everything. So yeah, it was awesome. That is amazing. What is the status of Trans Am? Is this still a project? So basically, we're still a band. The other guys are married with kids and day jobs and live really far. I live in New York. They live in California and New Zealand. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and, they're, and they're married with kids and day jobs. So, But we just got together about two months ago to work on a new album. Nice. But I feel like we've maybe done half the tracking we need to do. So it's up in the air when we'll, the three of us will be in the same room again together. Yeah. I mean, it, it was cool. It was really fun. We worked really hard. I think we did lots of good stuff. It's just, it's not finished. It's, it's going to take a couple more years. Mm. What was the impetus? Did someone kind of usher you to do it? Or, I mean, I mean, we, we never broke up. The last album was California Hotel, <laughs> which is, I was maybe only, was it like, like five years ago? Six years okay. Ago? like that but uh basically the impetus was that uh the guy that lives in new zealand came to america to visit his he's american he came to visit his folks so he was here for a while so 
we just said, why don't you just tack on another week to your visit and we'll do some work. Is that kind of your, are you the de facto leader of that project? That's a total, it's only three guys. So it's really very democratic. Okay. So how's yeah. the material come together? Do you get in a room and jam or is there stuff written ahead of time? That's a, that's, that's a little bit of a board of contention because I wish, I, I wish uh, we have differences of opinions. I wish we did a little more homework before meeting. Some of us believe more in the magic will happen in the studio, which I mean, that that's true. It can happen, but that happens if you're, you know, if you're, if you're practicing four hours a day, and actually playing with these people on a regular basis, definitely magic can happen in the studio. If you haven't been practicing and you haven't played with these guys in three years, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> magic is not going to happen in the studio. Yeah, it's like meeting each other for the first time again. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I mean, I mean, I've been playing with these guys since I was like 17 and they were 16. Mm -hmm. So we totally understand, we know how to communicate and we know like, uh, how to explain stuff to each other, but that can also be a problem because we you sort of get stuck in these modes of of writing, you know, and it's hard to get to do new new things sometimes. Did you find that your plane had changed the ways you didn't realize when you got back together with them after having done all this work oh, with Baroness? A hundred percent. I mean, they, I noticed it. They mentioned it, and it's. I think it's. It's yeah. I mean, it, both bands. I think that I've. Trans Am has sort of like sneaked in a little bit into Baroness as far as the drums go mm -hmm. and the other way around also. And I think it's cool. I think it works. How do you define the two? So, for example, Trans Am is much more, do you know the term motoric? No, but I can sort of deduct it. Motoric is that, that like, you know, kraut rock? Yeah, that's what I think. Just a, a constant. Okay, so, that's motoric, right? So that's that's a very transient thing. Baroness is much has much has lots of parts, you know, and like this part one part will go three times, this part will go five times for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like you know, Transam. There's songs that have one part, and it's just it's just a groove, right? So on the new album, you'll you'll notice there's there's moments in songs that are more in that just motoric, mm -hmm. it just it just drives and it just goes. And there's a there's a little bit of drum flare here and there, but not, nothing insane. And then there's there's no there's no chord change. And the in the other direction, Pan Am always toyed a little bit with sort of hardcore and post hardcore and metal and thrash. There was a little bit of sprinklings in there, but there's way more now in the drums, isn't there? For sure. Mm. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So how, when we talk about writing with Trans Am in the studio, 
How do you know when a track is finished? I asked a lot of people this. When you're writing collaboratively, like what? How far do you push it? Do you go too far and bring it back, or do you keep? I mean, where does it? So the way the way we work. By the way, I just want to warn you. Like I said, I'm at my parents' house, so it's a little bit like George Costanza and his parents. So they might you might hear them like yelling at each other. Love it. I mean, they, they, they love each other. It's great, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Serenity now is all right, I'm saying. Right. Anyway, uh, so so the way Trans Am writes, at least now, because we haven't been living together in many years, like 20 years, we haven't been at the same time. We have like a session zero, which is like, I just realized it's like a D and D term. But anyway, <laughs> a session zero is like, we send each other like just snippets of ideas, riffs or beats. Right? Uh-huh. Then the, the real session is... The, the meat of it, we're in the studio when we jam and we record and we track and we listen, that, that kind of stuff. And then we normally have to take a break because we're normally only together for a week. And then we all listen to everything. And then we get back together for a second session. And that session is the editing and the overdubbing, mm-hmm. right? Where we, where we add vocals or guitar solos or stuff like that, you know, and wrap up loose ends. And then we take another break and then we get back together for a mix session. So there's like different layers of, of analysis, right? So, so if the question is, when do you know a song is finished? We don't really until the last session, which is the mix session, right? Because there could be songs that we really enjoyed playing at the time, but then when it comes to the, the overdubbing or editing or mixing, you start to realize actually isn't as good as we thought mm. it may be another track kind of rises up to the surface you know baroness is not not so much like that i mean there is an analogy in the sense that john and gina do all the vocals after everything's tracked at least after the, the rhythms beds are tracked so there is like a, a level of an of a, a of listening a time for listening where we can sort of like reconsider what we've done. And we always try to have more tracks than we're going to use. So once again, we'll write some songs where oh, we think this is great. And then John tries to put vocals on it and it's just not something, nothing works or, or we're mixing and nothing works. or we're listening back and we're like, ah, and then we just have to leave it behind. But, uh, but yeah, you, you don't really, you don't, my answer is that you don't know when in the first tracking session a lot of the time, or mm-hmm. are we, if my bands don't know the first tracking session. Are you largely done with your work in that first session as far as like actually hitting drums? Yeah. Well, for Baroness, like uh, for, for Stone, uh, yeah, for the last three albums. So the first album I did with Baroness was Purple. And that, that we wrote like everything before we went to the studio. Mm-hmm. Like I had, I had the drum fills. Like I had written out the parts on MIDI. Mm-hmm. Like it was like that nerdy, mm-hmm. which was awesome because I could just go in there to give me a click track and I just play the song. I just played three times. We use one main take and one verse that's better from that take and slide it in. Done. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Um, Golden Gray, we wrote a lot of that in the studio, which is which is fun, but there's you know there's a time crunch element, 
And there's also, you know, like, it's better to have your discussions and disagreements when you're writing rather than in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. When you're paying hundreds of dollars a day and you're, and you're arguing in front of the producer. Right. Right. So, but I have to say, we, I mean, we, our arguments are always fun and I mean, they're high energy, but they're never mean spirit. Mm-hmm. So that's good. So, so for purple, yeah, we did, we did drum and bass and guitar for like two or three songs at a time. I was done in the, in the first week. Mm-hmm. Golden gray. I was there for like pretty much the three weeks, four weeks. And we were, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, we're doing drums now. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of things going on at the same time. In fact, in Golden Gray, we had two, two tracking rooms. So a lot of times we would split into two groups and work on stuff just as teams. Wild. A lot of the times, like Nick and I would be in one room working on a groove, coming up with stuff, and John and Gina would be working on guitar parts and overdubbing on another song. And then for Stone, that was about four weeks in a house that we rented in the mountains between New York State and Pennsylvania. And that was also everything kind of done at the same time, but it was only bass, drums, and rhythm guitar. Mm -hmm. All, all, All the leads or most of the leads and the vocals were done after that session. So yeah, so I was done with tracking stone in november of 2020 wild (laughs) yes because it was recorded during covid so that delayed everything yeah and then also john just you know he had some a little bit of writer's block with the lyrics just fine that happens and then uh you know he also does the artwork so there's a lot of a lot of writing on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. So that that sometimes makes the process a little slightly longer, you know. Do you so you don't have any vocal ideas when you're tracking the drums? It's just riffs and parts? No, I don't. And that's that's actually a good that's another slight bone of contention. Because <laughs> sometimes like you're like, oh, like I'll put a drum fill between these two phrases. Right. Right? I don't want to put a drum fill where there's going to be vocals. Yeah. And every now and again, awkward stuff happens, right? But that's the way it is. So you don't have to go back and, and edit out bits or anything like that? I mean, 98% of the time, John works around what we do. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So do you oh, write like, parts with that in mind? Like, uh, I have to be careful, but also throw in something that might inspire him? I mean, when we're... When we, I mean, so basically how it works is I'll, I'll send John and Nick and Gina, like many drum ideas, like recordings, and they'll pick like the 20% they like and write riffs to that. Mm. So I already have kind of an idea of what I'm doing. And then we get together and we, and we jam as a band and then we arrange stuff. And then, you know, you sort of start to get an idea of like, okay, what can I do to transition between parts? Or maybe this doesn't need a transition or things like that. I think, I think it's maybe subconsciously a little bit obvious where the vocals might be. I think it's more of an issue for Nick harmonically sometimes because he all he has to work with is, is other guitar parts. 
and sometimes he feels like you know he's he he's also like a jazz player mm. so he doesn't have i think a lot of rock bass players are like i'm gonna add maybe rhythmic interest to the guitar riff but he you know jazz guys are like i need to add harmonic content right. it's like a different way of thinking so i think for him sometimes he uh he wishes he had some vocals to work off but but then the argument could be that john needs to have everything else done to do the vocals yeah. so there's no there's no right or wrong way honestly yeah because every 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 element plays off the other elements so for me the tendency is to simplify my fills when i don't know what else is going on but there are times mm -hmm. when you go like a whole bar fill or something is that is that kind of urged by the band i mean how to how oh, do you get that permission <laughs> i just yeah, i just like honestly i i only do that when i like i think as a band we're like oh we need like a drum moment here uh -huh. like we i don't normally just force it in. no i'm not i'm actually a little bit shy about that okay i don't want to be like totally i don't want to be totally overbearing so like i, I there's yeah there's moments like there's a couple of long fills on beneath the rose right but i think that we talked about that. we were like yeah let's have a fucking long moment here mm -hmm. let's, let's go a little overboard you know that's very cool and then what about some of the this is what i love about what i the new record i think it's the opening track towards the outro you throw in these little like flips these little inversions these little kind of unexpected when I'm playing six, 16th notes on the high hat yeah and just the way that yeah. the, the you kind of interlope these they're not fills they're just like unexpected like the, variations and stuff do you know what if the, you, you know that the genealogy of that is if you listen to sunday bloody sunday by u2 that <laughs> intro is a little bit of where i got that from and then there's a trans am song called i want it all where i do that a little bit and then i when we were coming up with the outro for that song i, I realized oh this isn't a similar bpm i'm gonna try some of this stuff it's it's those fills where they start and they start and end not not in the normal place, not in the standard places. Right. It's a little like what? That's yeah, and that's 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 intentional. You is know, it, is it improvised with intention, or do you kind of write them out and do it the same every time? No, no, that 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 was totally improvised. Um, I I just that's like a little sort of lick that I that I've always kind of messed around with, so it was easy for me to improvise that one. That that was not written out. Yeah, I was just I was just messing around. Very cool. So you mentioned Sunday Blunday Sunday. That's the song that forced me to play right hand lead because I tried to do it left hand lead on a right hand kit. Oh uh, yeah, like... <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you're right. That makes sense. Yeah, that yeah. was the day I remember it. Like I have to learn how to play right handed because I can't play I mean, Sunday Blunday Sunday. <laughs> he's like, I mean, that's he's he's not the choppy drummer or a shorty drummer, but he writes totally memorable drum parts yeah and i think that's i think that's as hard i think it's awesome we will finish up our hang with sebastian next week but for now let's get to a lesson welcome into the first of four articles on how to play in seven eight with 16th notes and in this one we're going to do just some basic fundamentals of how to count and how to play groupings in seven eight since we're in 7-8 time, that means we have 14 16th notes to deal with. And the best way to organize these is to think of groups of 4 and 3. The most, one of the most common ways to play 7-8 in 16th notes would be 4 plus 4 
plus six, and then we're gonna actually play those sixes as two threes. So it'll be four plus four plus three plus three. I'm gonna start just by playing alternating strokes, starting with the right, and for those of you who are just listening, I'm gonna put the right hand on the floor tom, left hand on the snare, so you can really hear what each hand is doing. I'm putting an accent at the start of each grouping, so four plus four plus three plus three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 Let's do the same thing alternating, but start with the left. So it'll be left on the snare first. Four, four, three, three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think one of the most important things about being fluent in different types time signatures is to be able to mix and match different stickings. So an easy one to do would be play all the accents with one hand and all the unaccents with the other. So I'm going to start with uh, right hand playing the accent. So here are accent on the floor tom, and then all the other sixteenths will be played lightly on the snare. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now let's do the same thing starting with the left. So it'll be left accents and then right hand fills in all the unaccented notes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now let's apply some paradiddles. So for the fours, it makes sense to just play them as paradiddles. So right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, or left, right, left, right, right, left, right, right. When we get to the sixes or the two sets of threes, we can play a double paradiddle. The challenge is there's an accent in the middle of it. So right, left, right, left, right, right, or left, right, left, right, left, left. Let's try that starting with the right. Again, right hand on the floor tom, left hand on the snare. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now let's flip the sticking. So we're doing left hand on the snare to start. So it'll be a left paradiddle, right paradiddle, and then a left double paradiddle. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You probably noticed, but with the paradiddle variations, the sticking reverses every time the pattern repeats. Obviously, you can do any sticking you want, any four-note sticking or six-note sticking. You can apply it to the groups of four and six. But we're going to do one more, and it's the inverted paradiddle for the four. So right, left, left, right, or left, right, right, left. And then for the six notes, or the two groups of three, we're going to do... I, mean, I guess you could technically call it an inverted double paradiddle. So right, left, left, right, left, right, or left, right, right, left, right, left. Here's what that sounds like if you start with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 One, two, and here's what it sounds like if you start with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four. Okay, obviously there's a lot to work with there if you've not played any of this stuff before. That could take you a while, but if you're ready for a challenge, you don't have to play 7-8 as 4 plus 4 plus 6. You can move that 6 to the beginning. So we'll try all the same variations, but we're going to start with the 6. So it'll be 6 plus 4 plus 4. 
Let's start alternating, starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 Alternating, starting with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now let's try that double paradiddle plus two paradiddles, starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 And double paradiddle plus two paradiddles, starting with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, Now let's try those inverted paradiddles. So it'll be an inverted double paradiddle and then two inverted paradiddles starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 And lastly, the inverted double paradiddle starting with the left and then two paradiddles starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. My guess that probably feels and sounds pretty foreign to you if you've not messed with different groupings in 7-8 that are a little bit more unconventional. There's still one more that is kind of really odd and uncommon. That's to put the 6 in the middle. So you do a 4 plus 6 plus 4. Same thing, alternating, starting with the right. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Alternating starting with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All accents with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All accents with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Paradiddle starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Paradiddle starting with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 One. Inverted paradiddle starting with the right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And lastly, inverted paradiddles starting with the left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 One, two. So spend time with those different options. You know, work on all the stickings for the different groupings. Get real fluent with it. And then ultimately, you should be able to improvise, or you want to be able to improvise, 16th note patterns in 7-8 that can kind of freely go between these three different versions of 446 or 644 or 464. 
So it just starts to sound a little bit more open-ended, less kind of repeating every measure. So give that a shot. Let me know what you think. And next time we will start incorporating the bass drum. This is a question that came in from Alex. Topic of snare wires and bottom heads. When should we think about changing one versus the other to achieve certain sounds? It's a good question. I think the bottom side of the snare drum, and quite frankly, is the the least is the is the one part of any drum that you should think about the least. If the bottom head is not overstretched or bent or cracked, in general, I don't touch it. It's when it starts to get overstretched and the hoop starts to get down closer to the barren edge is when. Um, I know it's time to change it because those will usually pull out before they'll break. So you won't really know that they're they're about to pull out until it's you know until it's too late and you just have you're on the gig and it just sounds like you're you're playing a cardboard box and you didn't realize that the bottom head is broken. So I tend to not change the bottom head on the snare drum until it starts to show some signs of being overstretched or worn out. Same thing with wires. If they're not rattling, if they're not buzzing, if they're not if they're not accidentally dented or like pulled and stretched and bent, causing some rattle, and the drum sounds cool, I leave it alone. As far as mixing up different models, I think a, a, a medium grade bottom head, so like a 300 series Evans or an Ambassador Remo, I think Aquarian just has the one size. Um, you know, just a, a basic thin bottom head is going to get you through almost anything. I would only bump up to a thicker one if you're if you're hitting really hard and you're just blowing through bottom heads, and I only go to a thinner one if you're only playing really quiet, like orchestral style or you know really delicate music. Otherwise, the the middle of the road thin snare side head is going to be perfect. As far as the wires, I personally like less rattle out of a snare drum, so I usually start with 16s. Most people start with 20s, and I will adjust depending. If a drum just feels a little bit too dry and not give me enough like crispiness, I'll bump it up. If I have a 16, I'll bump it up to a 20. If I have a 20 on there and it still sounds too dry, I might bump up to a 25. Very rarely do I go for the super wide 42 strands. If a drum comes with those and it sounds good, I won't mess with it. So it's kind of the same philosophy. I don't mess with the wires until it's not giving me the results that I want. Either it's, it's rattling too much, um, or I'm just not getting enough snare sound. Those are the two parameters. If I need more snare sound, I'll go to a wider one. If it's rattling too much, I'll just replace whatever's on there. All right, there's a bunch of other questions to follow up regarding that topic, but we'll save that for next time. For now, let's get to our warehouse pick of the week. I know we're getting towards the end of the holiday gift buying season, but we do still have some stick bag gift packs available and we have some snarehead tune-up packs available. The stick bags, I think they're all 5As. You get a couple different types of sticks. You get a nice stick bag. Um, some of them have moon gel, some of them have a drum key. So we have those available. They're ready to go. Great price. So that's a great gift. Maybe if you forgot to get someone a gift and you want to get it to them after the holidays, we've got those. The snarehead tune-up pack comes with a 10 mil coated batter head, the thin snare side clear head, these are all DFD branded stuff, and a set of 20 strand wires. So if you just need, and that's that, those are really affordable, I think it's like 20 bucks or something. 
So if you just need need a refresh pack for your snare drum, good, decent, medium-grade batter head, a thin snare side, and a good set of wires, go check those out. So go take a look on drumfactordirect.com for the stickback gift packs in the snare head tune-up kits. That is it for this week's episode. Once again, um, mark your calendars for January 23rd. If you're anywhere in the Pittsburgh area, come hang out with us and David Throckmorton and the Hawthorne Drum Shop crew and the PAS Pennsylvania chapter folks. Um, we're going to be there for three hours, 6 to 9, January 23rd, tuning some drums, watching Dave play. It'll be a good hang. I think we got some pizza coming and some beverages. So it'll be a casual. Bring your friends, bring your students, and we'll see you there. And as always, if you don't mind giving us a review, give us a five-star rating. That helps spread the show to more listeners around the world. Make sure you're subscribing to our YouTube channel and following Drum Factor Direct's socials and my page, Mike Dawson Drums. And we'll be back next week to finish up our chat with Seb. We have another lesson, some more fun. So see you next week.